Good morning, everyone. Yeah, we should feel that way after a, an extra hour of sleep. Who actually got an extra hour or who actually got an extra hour of sleep? And then how many of you actually stayed up later because you knew you had another hour? Okay, now, there you go. Now, now truth comes out. And that's, way, that's what happens, doesn't it? Uh, let me just open in prayer. Um, Father, thank you for this opportunity to be here this morning and um, to worship together. Thank you for the faces and the folks that are here. And, and we just take some priority of our um, time and, and dedicate it to you right now. I desperately want to hear from you. Um, I pray that would be contagious throughout the room. Be hungry for you. Listen to what you have to say. Move among us, Father, in the name of Jesus, your Son. Amen. Well, it is an honor and a privilege to come up and share God's Word. And as uh, Liz was sharing, Rob's uh, away for a few weeks, so it gives us an opportunity to uh, kind of present uh, a little different different accent, so you don't get a uh, um, South African accent, you're going to Oklahoma accent today, and I'll sweep into that a little bit. Have you? Let me ask you a question. Have you ever considered how big a role imitation plays in our lives to copy, replicate, mimic something? Have you ever thought about that? I've been thinking somewhat about it, kind of leaning into this series that we're in right now calling Be Joyful using the book of Philippians. And today's sermon, there's a couple of verses that, comes out, that come out in Philippians that talk about us imitating, imitating Christ-likeness. And thinking about that made me wonder, we, imitation's a big part of our lives. I could think of it kind of cross-secting in, in, in four different paths. There's imitation that we do for fun. Um, there was a kid I grew up with, and it was in a period of time when on television there was always a lot of folks in doing in kind of impressionistic kind of things. They would do voices of other people, and it would sound just like them. And, and Howard Cosell was big on Monday Night Football, and it seemed like this kid could just do his voice perfectly well, and, and a lot of others. And, and so you get this idea, and it was fun. But we've also all played the game Simon Says, right? And the idea of trying to mimic somebody else's uh, actions or words. So they say a word, but their actions may be different than that, and they're try you're trying to follow what they're telling you to do rather than what they're actually showing you to do. So we have fun with imitation sometimes, even have games around it. But there's also imitation from malice, that is, from bad intentions. Um, there's some that imitate just to mimic and mock someone. It used to be reserved just for the uh, school bully or that tough time through middle school that we all went through or are going through, sorry. Now there's a shifting dominance of sarcasm in our culture where to mimic somebody, mock somebody, seems to be kind of everybody looks for it and, gets it and thinks it's funny, you get a laugh from it. Um, it's really a hatefulness. And imitation, though, is more than just a game. And it's more than a form of hatefulness. It's also good. It plays a big part in how we learn and interact and behave. Think about it for a minute. There's a quote that comes from the 17th century that's restated a lot in different playwrights and, and, and different 
places, and maybe you've heard it, it says, imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. Have you heard that before? Imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. We imitate, we copy, we follow as a model or example of someone in order to compliment them. And to copy can be to compliment. I'm going to dress like them, or I'm going to act like them, or I'm going to follow in their footsteps as a form of intent to compliment someone, to replicate or, or to emulate their praise. We imitate sometimes in modeling another person's appearance and their actions. And we do it to those we admire or look up to, we esteem, we think they're credible or successful, we may dress like them, and there's books about dressing for success and looking up. We may look to someone that is a movie star or an athlete or someone of high position, and we look to them and like, I'm going to dress like that, and they set the style. We also imitate people when we think what they're doing works and it might work for us, Right? And we're like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to do it that way. And we look at it and we imitate it. And sometimes we do it out of necessity. We see that's worked. I don't have time to do anything else. I'm going to follow it this way. I've done it that way before. I'm going to follow this pattern. And it works and it helps me do what I need to get done. Helps me finish my goals. But there's also imitation in another form not just from intent to do it, and I'm going to purposely make a decision to do it. Actually, there's an imitation that comes from exposure, <clears throat> or if you will, overexposure. Um, imitation seems to intensify with exposure to someone or something. When we spend more and more time together, or with other influences of some kind, we begin to imitate the conduct of the other person and their mannerisms. We can even do it unconsciously. How many have seen that? Yeah, how many of us have done that? <laughs> you know, like, oh, no, I'm doing that. How many of us have said, I sound just like my dad or my mom? <laughs> I can't believe that just came my mouth. You know, I just, I just said that. Something I remember consciously saying, I would never do that. And then you find yourself out repeating it to your son. Like, oh, I sound just like my dad. Sorry, Ellen. And he's saying, I'm not going to say that. And guess what? We're passing it down. Well, psychologists speak of this, this kind of behavior of overindulgence, overexposure, and starting to unconsciously follow someone as an automatic imitation. And they refer to it as the mirroring, mirroring effect or the chameleon effect. Essentially, the chameleon effect is this. When I spend a large amount of time with someone, when we spend a large, large amount of time with someone, or around other influences, and they could be imaginative, like TV or shows or video games or, or whatever it might be, books and, uh, and so on. When I start spending a lot of time with someone or an, an other kind of influence, there's an unconscious mimicry of the behaviors, gestures, mannerisms, facial expressions, and even the accent of another person. Maybe you've noticed that before in your life. I know for Rayleigh and I, having moved around all over the country, 
we hear our children, we've watched our children kind of move as they go in another area and say, I can't believe she just said it like that. I mean, she's around me all the time and she just said this particular word in that way, like with another accent. Um, Dad, did you wash the car? I said, wash the car? I don't say that. That sounds funny coming from me, right? No, I washed the car. And, you know, those kinds of things, the subtle kind of things, but you start spending time with someone or in a different culture and it affects you. And it's called this chameleon effect. Matter of fact, the Department of Psychology at the University of College in London did some research on this. And they found that healthy adults, this isn't just people who need help, healthy adults exposed to something over a long period of time have a pervasive and automatic tendency to imitate the actions of those that are around and the influences that affect them. And they did all kinds of studies and said, you put someone long enough with someone and they'll start acting like that. They'll start mimicking the words, the phrases, the thoughts. They might even start dressing alike and doing that. You spend enough time with someone that dresses well and is well kept and you'll start maybe spiffing up a little bit. You spend enough time with somebody that looks kind of slobby all the time, and guess what? <laughs> you just go, well, it's, it's, it's okay. You spend some time, uh, enough time with someone who's well-organized, and maybe it'll rub off. Someone who's very positive, and maybe that'll rub off. Someone who's very negative or disorganized, it can rub off. So it doesn't take a rocket scientist or the College of uh, University of London to tell us this, but we know, it's, we know it's true. The other thing that came out of this study was that there's an impact of irrelevant actions. That, in other words, things, gestures and things that are due on responding to words. And we get this out of Simon Says, right? Simon Says, everybody stand up and everybody stands up because Simon Says. Simon says, raise your foot, and everybody raises your foot. And then the other guy says, raise your arm, and he just raises his arm, and everybody raises his arm because they're following those actions, but they didn't listen to the words. And that's, that's kind of the, the thought about that game. It's to try, are you listening to the words, or are you watching the actions? And we come to find out there is a natural tendency, you're going to lose it, Simon says, <laughs> down the road, because there's a natural human tendency to follow the actions over the words. And this is for all of us. So imitation can be both good and bad, right? And what you're exposed to. And it makes up a large amount of how we learn. From your own personal experiences, think about it for a minute. You realize that the majority of things we learn really didn't happen in a classroom or listening to a sermon, somebody preach at you, or reading it out of a book. We learn a lot by what we see and what we actually can physically experience. That's why YouTube clips are, 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 are so wild right now because people can look, how do I do this? Oh, and you go look, they'll go look up on a YouTube video. How many have done that? How many of you have gone to a YouTube video and looked up how to use something? All of us have. It's, it's, it's so common because we can actually see how somebody else did it. And say, oh, that's because you read about it and it doesn't make sense, but then you see someone, oh, Okay, I get it. It shapes a large part of our lives, imitation does. And how we learn and even how we interact with one another. 
it molds a large part of our behavioral traits for good and bad. And think about things, riding a bike. You have a seven-year-old that's going to have a bike. You buy them a bike, you give them a book, and you say, here's a book on how to ride a bike, best to you. That's not how you do it, is it? You show them how to get on a bike, and then you help them along with the bike, and you learn to ride a bike. It's hard to get it. Now, you can read all about it, and we, there's a large tendency to do that right now with the Internet, a lot of things, because you can go read about all kinds of things. But it doesn't necessarily mean you're learning how to do them. And we teach our kids, and we grow up with these. You, you learned how to make a bed or not make your bed. Uh, how you shower, how you dress, which shoe you put on first, how you tie your shoes, which side the belt you put your, you know, go through the loops on your, all of these things people taught you. They, you watched, you mimicked, you imitated it. We learn how to, well, I think learning how to drive is a great example. Learning how to drive involves multiple things. It's very complex. All of you that have been driving for a number of years say, okay, I know there's a lot of risk in it. You just have to be careful. You have to watch out for others, those kinds of things. But then it changes when your own child moves into that 15, 16-year-old time frame. You're like, I'm just getting ready to put him or her out in the middle of the mass bike or, or, or Highway 9 or, or something like or just even a parking lot with people darting in and out of it. You realize you can't just hand them a manual and say, Here's the driver's manual that'll teach you everything you need to know about the rules and regulations of driving in Massachusetts. It's not enough, is it? You, you need practical experience. Well, the Bible has a number of references calling us out how to imitate and to imitate and make an example of following Jesus. And so we're going to turn to Scripture, and we're going to look and see what it tells us about imitate, and I want to have this kind of image in mind. Before we do, would you join me in prayer one more time, because I want this to connect. And if you have a Bible or an app that you can get to on your Bible, please turn to um, uh, Acts 16. We'll be there in just a few minutes. Holy Spirit, would you come? Would you fall on this room right now? Would you move with men among us? encourage us by what you're going to show us and reveal to us through the scriptures through the word of god jesus you walked across this earth and you spoke and you showed your disciples how to do things and then you called us to follow you we're listening and now teach us this morning amen well, there's a lot of references in Scripture. I've put a whole list of them up on the board. Let me just read through what some of these say to you right now. Just hold on and follow this. 1 Corinthians 4.15 For I became your father, Paul wrote to the Corinthians, in Christ Jesus, when I preached the good news to you. When I brought the gospel to you and I shared Jesus to you, I became kind of like your father in the faith. You get it? So he says, I urge you to imitate me. That's why I've sent Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord. That's why I sent Timothy to you. He'll remind you of all these things and how I follow Christ Jesus as I teach all the churches wherever I go. So imitate me. Later on in that same letter, he said, and you should imitate me just as I imitate Christ. Who's Paul imitating? Jesus. Imitate him. Follow that Christ likeness. I'm so glad that you always keep me in your thoughts, he says, and that you're following the teachings I passed on to you. 
So following the teachings. In, in a, letter, a second letter to the Thessalonians, he wrote, For you know that you ought to imitate us. You, you know you ought to. We were not idle when we were with you. We never accepted food from anyone without paying for it. We worked hard not day and night so we would not be a burden to any of you. And we go back to Acts like chapter 18 when Paul was doing his missionary journeys. He was a tent maker by trade. He'd go into town and he wouldn't ask for money from people. He would actually do his trade, do his work, and he would minister to people. So he wouldn't be a burden on anybody because you know, I want you to imitate that. And he, the writer uh, of the letter to Hebrews said this, Remember your leaders who taught you the word of God. Think of all the good that has come from their lives and follow the example. Imitate their faith. Peter wrote this in 1 Peter 2. God called you to do good. Even if it means suffering. Just as Christ suffered for you. He is your example. And you must follow in his steps. And Jesus himself said this. Actually, right at the Last Supper, on the very, very night he was being betrayed, he said this to his disciples gathered together, you call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, because that's what I am. And since I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to wash each other's feet. I've given you an example to follow. Do as I have done to you. I tell you the truth, slaves are not greater than their master, nor is the messenger more important than the one who sends the message. Now that you know these things, God bless you and will bless you for doing them. In our current series in Philippians, there's actually three instances that's called out about following or imitating Christ. Christ-likeness. I'd like to fold into that for just a minute. The first one is found in Philippians chapter 2. I've got it on the screen. If you've got a Bible or an app, let's read this and look at this together. Philippians chapter 2. We've already gone through this, but I just want to bring it up again because it's one of the three passages in this short little letter. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. We could stop right now and I could ask you, this week, do you think you had the same attitude in how you did things that Christ Jesus does? Okay, some are laughing, some are shaking their heads, some refuse to look at me. That's okay, because we're all in that, right? We all feel that. Paul says you must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had, though he was God. He did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. That's the kind of attitude we're to have. It's always a good check to go back. You feel like your attitude's out of check? Mm, I should put my attitude like Christ. Hey, Jesus, what's your attitude like? How do we get there? Well, the other two instances are the ones I want to focus in on and lean into today. In Philippians chapter 3, yeah, chapter 3, verse 17, Paul said, Dear brothers and sisters, pattern your lives after mine. I remember mom laying down a pattern. She would cut out, this is when people still made clothes, but she would lay out cloth that she would make and have a pattern and she would cut it out. And she'd even let my brother and I sometimes cut it out when, you know, was something 
I'm sure it was outside of the bounds <laughs> that she knew we wouldn't mess it up. But we'd follow. He said, I want you to pattern your life after mine. I'm going to lay my life down on yours. And I want you to pattern yours after mine and learn from those who follow our example. The next verse uh, example is in uh, chapter four, verse nine. He says this, chapter four, verse nine. Keep putting into practice all you've learned and received from me. Everything you heard from me and saw me doing. Then the God of peace will be with you. Everything you heard and saw from me. I, I love that Paul actually leaned into this. Holy Spirit's teaching this. because He's saying, not everything I told you. Not everything that I preached at you and said, you should do this. Not everything you read. Everything you saw in me. So we're going to talk about what he says in these two, two chapters, chapter 3 and 4. But I can't do it without taking you back and making this as real as I possibly can. We have to put ourselves in a place right now to think about what is Philippi? Where is Philippi? It's a small little town. We've gone through this study over the past month and a half, and we've not really talked about it. Philippi is a small town in what was Macedonia, northern Greece. As you would move up and start going uh, east up out of Greece, there's a town called Philippi, just miles, I think it's eight miles from the coast. It was really insignificant little place, except for in the mountains there were, uh, nearby, there was a lot of mining that was going on because people had discovered gold. True story. Well, if you like history at all, and you want to see the relevance of the story, follow me just for a minute. Julius Caesar took control of all of Rome, had made, become the dictator of all of Rome. And you remember the story, he had all kinds of things going on in his life, but he was murdered by Brutus. And his stepson, one that he had adopted because he didn't have his own, who would be his inheritance, his name was Octavius. And Octavius and a friend of Julius Caesar, who was a close friend and general of his, named Mark Anthony, they went on a search for Brutus and the killers and, tr and tracked him all the way out of Rome, through Italy, through Greece, and found him and battled with them in Philippi, a small little town outside in northern Greece, and battled and defeated them. Now you're thinking, Jeff, why are you going down the story? Because it's actually so relevant to what we're going to speak to, because when they did that, Octavius who later would become the Caesar and his name would be changed by parliament to Augustus, Augustus Caesar, he said, I'm going to leave some of our soldiers here in this town. I'm going to make this town something more than just this little hole in the ground where mining's being done. And he made what became later, by the time of Paul, some 40, 50 years later, it's become what was known as Little Rome. It became so Roman kind of in culture, they left soldiers there to occupy it then to manage it and then to be the leaders of it and so outside of italy outside of what was in the heart of rome is little rome or philippi it's not far from the coast gold mining's going on and you can imagine now 50 years later with all the investment of rome into it it has grown has become a very established city and town and paul finds himself going to Philippi on his second missionary journey where he's taking the message of Jesus Christ out into the Roman Empire. 
And he leaves Palestine and he goes up and he finds himself in a town, a city called Philippi. It's so culturally relevant to Rome. There's not a huge Jewish presence at all. And we get the idea in Acts chapter 16 that Paul can't find a place, a synagogue to worship. And the scriptures tell us that he goes outside of town to a stream of water, to a river, because he anticipates if there's any Jews here, any followers of Judaism, I'm going to find them there worshiping God on the Sabbath. And so Paul and Silas and Dr. Luke go outside of town. And it says that we went outside of town and they found some people and they found a woman there. A woman who had been a convert to Judaism, though she herself was a Gentile, Lydia. She was uh, an executive, if you will, ran a purple cloth manufacturing business and did quite well. And she was listening to Paul. He goes there and he starts speaking to her. And the scriptures tell us he, she believed what he said. And she believed in the message of Jesus. And she accepted Jesus and her whole household right there. And in the water in that day, in that moment, they were all baptized. Paul makes his first converts. What I see out of this is what did the Philippians see that they want to mimic in Paul's life? Well, he makes church. He makes gathering with other believers a priority in his life. And he goes to a town where there's not any. He goes where he thinks he can find somebody and he finds some. And he makes the second half of that priority of sharing Jesus, of sharing Christ. He's not just showing up and sitting on the back pew by the riverbed. He's going to tell people about Jesus. And she believes. Well, she takes him home and this group and they're gathered together. And it says now on a future Sabbath, they go back down to the river. They're doing business there. And on their way there, there's a slave girl that follows them. And she has some kind of demonic spirit of fortune telling. And she's calling out to them, I know who you are. You're coming here to tell us about Jesus. The one who can save people. Well, it sounds like a good message, even coming from a demon to come by, you know, telling people, right? Sounds like not a bad thing. But the scriptures tell us that she was so pushy. And, and, and shouting so much and making such a nuisance of that that Paul became exasperated, turns around and cast out the demon. Get out of her. Leave us alone. The demon leaves her. Oh, that's great. Praise God. Except for her owners who had made a lot of money, were making a lot of money with her selling and telling fortunes to people. They grab Paul and Silas. They drag them back into Philippi in front of the city council and said, these guys are teaching traditions of the Jews that aren't part of our people. And they strip them, take wooden rods and beat them and throw them to jail. And he tells the jailer, the head jailer, I want you to put them in a place in the jail where these guys cannot get out. And so we find Paul and Silas chained in prison it's set in the deepest part of the dungeon of the, of the prison. What I find that the Philippines would start thinking about when they think about Paul and the life they wanted to, to imitate. They found somebody that faith really is spelled R-I-S-K. We've said that a lot of times. Because when it came to a place that he was going to stand up for his faith and someone's mocking him that was not of him, that was not of the Lord, he stood up and 
ultimately ended up him being thrown into jail. The story doesn't end. He's sitting in jail that night. How would you feel if you'd been stripped naked publicly and beaten with wooden rods, severely it says, and now you're in prison and chained in jail? What would you be doing? Where's my dime or quarter? How do I call my attorney? What, what, what thing? Crying, screaming, whatever it might be. We find in the scriptures, around midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. What do the Philippians think about when they remembered Paul and the kind of life they're supposed to mimic? It doesn't matter my circumstance. I really preached them this last week. It doesn't matter what circumstance I'm in. I'm going to praise God. I'm going to worship him. All the other prisoners are listening. We find out the jailer's actually gone off someplace and he's gone to sleep. And as they're worshiping God, all the other prisoners are listening like these two crazy bleeding Jews over here, you know, beaten over here. An earthquake rattles the whole building. Every jail door flies open, it says in Scripture. And all the chains of every prisoner fall off. Open up and just fall to the ground. The jailer says he woke from his sleep, comes running in, finds all the doors wide open, pulls out his sword. He's going to kill himself because he knows all the prisoners have escaped. Much better that he kill himself than what the Romans will do to him when they find out that he let everybody get away. And Paul and Silas scream out to him, hey, stop that. Don't do that. We're here. And it says the jailer came and fell on his knees before Paul and Silas. What must I do to be saved? How can I be rescued? Believe in Jesus. And he bandages them up, takes them home, cleans their wounds. And Paul and Silas share the message of Jesus Christ and his grace and love for them. And the jailer and his whole family accept Jesus that night and said they were baptized. So somewhere around three or four in the morning, there's another baptism going on. We have to organize it and do it months in advance to make plans to have people show up. They just baptize right then. And they baptize somebody right then in the middle of the night. And then they lead him back into the jail before morning. Paul's thinking, that's where I should be. So the third point is, we see Paul, what they'll remember about him, he's joyful in every circumstance. Live example of what we heard Aureli preach on last week. But it's not enough. Paul and Silas are back in jail the next morning, and at daybreak, in the morning, a messenger from the city officials is sent, and he tells the jailer, who doesn't know anything that's gone on in this, all the prisoners are back in their cells, everything's all strapped up, and he goes in, okay, get these guys out of here, release them, and let them go. I don't want to see them again. The jailer said, you're not going to believe this, you're being let go. Is this awesome? They're going to let you go, Paul and Silas. And he's unlocking their chains, letting them go. Paul and Silas says, uh, no, that's not good enough for me. Don't unlock my chains. You have them come let me out of here. And the jailer said, are you? No, <laughs> come on. This is God's blessing. It's happening to him. Paul and Silas said, no, I tell you what. Here's my Roman passport. I'm a citizen of Rome. You cannot take someone to prison without a trial. And you certainly can't beat them and publicly strip them like they did me. No, the city officials can come get us. The messenger went back, said he was a nervous wreck, went before the count, and they were like petrified. They come back and say, please, we're so sorry we didn't mean because they knew that Paul could take, and the same punishment they'd inflicted him would be double back for them. 
Paul stood up for social justice. When there was a time to stand up, because he knew if he could stand up there, that he was doing something that would extend out the faith of many, many people for, from time to, for a long time to come. Paul stood up for his rights. So what do the Philippians think about when Paul says, follow the pattern of my life, follow the example? They're remembering these stories. They lived them, folks. They lived them out, and they're thinking, Paul was the kind of guy, man, he, no matter what happened, he was telling people about Jesus. No matter what happened, he was joyful. There's some kind of joy coming up in his heart. What's in him? He has grasped hold of what it is to know God and the power of his salvation, and he is joyful. So we get to this last part here in Philippians chapter 3, what I'd read earlier, and he says, brothers and sisters, pattern your lives after mine. Learn from those who follow our example. What comes to their mind? Things that he's preached to them and told? Or the story I just outlined for you and how he lived it? I mean, if that kind of person was in our midst, you would not forget who they Oh, that's the one. <laughs> yeah, she's the one. He's the, he's the one that that happened to. And you remember the story. Well, in Philippians chapter 3, if you'll turn there with me one more time, I'd like to look at just a few verses because there's a few things that come out of this and what Paul told them to do that applies to this message this morning. He told them, pattern their lives after mine. And in verse 7, he said, I once thought these things. And he's talking about all the things he's done, his accomplishments, his credentials, his connections in life, all the things that made Paul important as a Jew of the Jews, of a Pharisee of the Pharisees, all these kinds of things. I thought those were so important, all the titles I had and all the people I knew. I once thought these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Paul's saying to these guys, pattern your life after mine. And number one is this, to know Jesus and to be growing in a relationship with him. I, everything else is worthless to me. You saw it, and that's what I'm telling you how to live your life. And then he goes on to say in verse, six, verse 10, Guys, I want you to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. Paul's telling us, here's what I want you to pattern your life out. I want you to pattern your life after knowing not just Jesus, but experiencing his mighty power. Everyone in this room who knows Jesus, there'll be a moment you're going to experience the mighty power of God when he raises you from the dead and you're in eternity with the Lord. And if you know of anybody in your life that knew Jesus and went on before you, we don't, we don't moan for them anymore because they're now in the presence of the Lord. We will experience that mighty power, but it's beyond just at the resurrection. The kingdom of God is coming, but it's actually here right now. And we can experience the mighty power of God and the salvation that he brings. Paul's saying, that's how you should pattern your life. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. I want to know it. I want to experience it. I can't help but just say, right now, Lord, I just want to experience your mighty power. I want to suffer with him, Paul says, sharing in his death so that one way or another I'll experience the resurrection from the dead. I'm willing to put it all out for Jesus because I want to experience him. Verse 12, he says this, the next point. 
I don't mean to say that I've already achieved these things or that I've already reached perfection. But I press on to possess the perfection for which Christ Jesus first possessed me. Dear brothers and sisters, I have not achieved it, but that is perfection, but I focus on this one thing. That ought to make us all stop right now. Paul said, I'm going to focus on this one thing. Forgetting the past and looking forward to what lies ahead. I press on to reach the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize for which God through Christ Jesus is calling me. Paul says, I'm going to press into holiness. That's what I want, how you pattern your life is. I want you to press into holiness. I want you to look forward, not look back. I want you to look forward to the life that we're going to have. I am overly optimistic sometimes. But it really gets to me that we spend so much time thinking about what we did in the past. Or where we are. And I know we have to understand that so how we can move forward. But sometimes we need to stop and just say, I need to think looking forward. If I'm not forward looking enough, I'm not doing the one thing Paul said to do. I want you to focus looking forward. It doesn't mean we can't look back. But you're not going to get there unless you're focused looking forward. And the last thing he said in verse 20, we're citizens of heaven. I know I pulled out my Roman citizenship passport or, or my green card to be here. But you know what? I have new papers. I have a citizenship of heaven where the Lord Jesus lives. He didn't say where he's going to live or where it's going to be someday or someplace. No, where Jesus lives right now. And we're eagerly waiting for him to return. Paul says, here's how you pattern your life. I want you to be enthusiastically waiting on Jesus, on his return. Our lives patterned that way. And in chapter 4, these quick points on how we're going to close this message today. He said, I want you to put in practice everything you've learned and seen in me. I want you to put it into practice. And he tells us in verse 4 of that chapter, that means rejoice in all our life with Jesus. He says, always be full of joy in the Lord. And I say again, rejoice. He didn't say be happy. If you're focusing on what your relationship with Jesus, there's a joy that comes up within us. And he says, I want you to rejoice. Make that a priority in your life. I want you to put that into practice. And verse 5, he said, let everyone see that you're considering all you do. Remember the Lord is coming soon. Let everybody see through your life that the Lord is coming back. You have an anticipation in your life that you're on your toes. I don't see waiting on Jesus that I'm sitting back. For some reason, I feel like it's, I'm on my toes looking forward. And then he says, here's how you should follow my example. Replace worry with prayer and thanksgiving. Anybody have any worry in their life right now? Paul said, verse 6, don't worry about anything. Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Everything. Tell God what you need and thank Him for all He's done. Wow, that's how we're supposed to live our lives. This wasn't some kind of verse that you put to memory and kind of pull it out and say, oh, like this. It was how we're supposed to pattern our lives. I'm not going to worry about this. 
Lord Jesus, would you intervene in this moment? That's how I'm going to pattern my life. And the last thing was this. We got to refine our thought life, he says. Fix one thing. Fix your thoughts on what's true. Honorable and right and pure and lovely and admirable. Think about these things that are excellent and worthy of praise. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up and we're going to spend a few minutes in worship. And as we do, I'd like you to think about this. I'd like you to ask the Lord to refocus your thoughts right now as directed in Philippians 4.8. Put everything else behind. Focus on one thing that's forward and think about what's honorable and true and pure and right and lovely and admirable. And then I'd like you to do this. I'd like to ask yourselves, are you pushing forward? Are you focusing your life after Christ? And then finally, here's one to really dwell in. Am I spending enough time with Jesus that I would start imitating him and how I live? Let's think about these things. If you'll stand and we'll worship together as we do that.